I think having an enterprise risk management program is really huge. Whether it's formal or not, somebody has to be responsible for risk overall. That gets to this whole idea that it's, it is a team sport and everyone has a role to play, especially business unit leaders that are making decisions on cloud platforms on their own. They're playing a huge role on that. The idea around cybersecurity several years ago wasn't quite where it is now, but the enterprise risk management team has done a really solid effort of elevating the dialogue and getting everyone more cognitive and aware that cybersecurity is not just an IT thing, it's, it's a company thing. And it fits into the whole cybersecurity framework overall. Hello and welcome to Security Visionaries. You just heard from today's guest, Joe Topinka, CXO advisor at Netscope. The responsibility of cybersecurity doesn't only fall on the shoulders of that team. It takes all of us working together. Getting folks on board with security begins by fostering relationships across the organization, particularly with IT and business unit leaders. This allows folks to have vulnerable conversations that ultimately help the organization grow. Before we dive into Joe's interview, here's a brief word from our sponsor. The Security Visionaries podcast is powered by the team at Netscope. At Netscope, we are redefining cloud, data, and network security with a platform that provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Without further ado, please enjoy episode 18 of Security Visionaries with Joe Topinka, CXO advisor at Netscope, and your host, Mike Anderson. Welcome to today's episode of Security Visionaries Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Anderson. I'm the Chief Digital and Information Officer here at Netscope. Today, I am joined by Joe Topinka. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Well, better, I should say. I'm, I'm on my 11th day of COVID, hopefully coming out of it. I tested positive again today, but there's always another day tomorrow. So, But, but doing well. Thanks for asking, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. I'm glad you're you know getting back into it. Hopefully, you'll get that negative test soon so you can get out of quarantine. I know that's never fun. Not at all. Not at all. So one of the things, you know, it's interesting is before we get into this, you know, Joe, you and I met several years ago, you know, I had this habit of when I read a book I really love, I, I like to reach out to the author and connect. And, you know, I did that. And you and I instantly had a great some great conversations. I brought you in to, to talk to the team when I was the CIO at Schneider Electric for the, the North America business. And, you know, you and I have, you know, remained friends since then. And so it's just, a, it's a real privilege to have you on here. And especially with the, just your insight in the industry being a super successful CIO and, and a mentor to CIOs around the world. So maybe just we start the conversation off. Maybe just talk about your journey, you know, to in being a CIO and, and how that came about and and some of the, the learnings along the way. Sounds good. Well, again, thanks for having me on. And it's it's an absolute pleasure to be with you today and, and, and also to be working with you here over the last year or so. My career started many, many years ago in the mid-19, well, late, late 1980s, not 80s, 19. 70s, early 1980s. There we go. See, that's what happens when you get COVID. And I started out as a software engineer. I thought I would never want to do anything else but write code. And I did that for a large financial institution. Actually, it was it's now FIS. So I spent many years there building software. And I was really fortunate, Mike, in that our leadership team at the time had you know, a different vision around technology. And since they were surrounded by technologists, they really wanted us to start thinking more like business people, business technologists. And so they sent us to a, a tailored program. They sent us to Northwestern and we, we learned about product management. This was in the uh, probably 
1990s or so. And I, I just was, I was just so fortunate to have gotten introduced to the idea of thinking about my area of the business, uh, like a business person and not a technologist. And so I started thinking about markets and customers and value proposition and things that were in, in, in my past life pretty foreign to me. And I just really glommed onto it and, it and one thing led to another. And I got my first CIO opportunity with the bank in New York and Manhattan. And it was just so game-changing for me and so much fun. And the, the learnings that I was able to acquire through that experience with my colleagues at Northwestern was just absolutely amazing. I still speak to some of them today, but it was a real eye-opening experience and I've never looked back. That's amazing. And the whole business relationship piece, you know, I, I mean, your book around IT business partnerships and in your, you know, how you foster that, you know, fits perfectly, honestly, with our theme this year around security as a team sport. It's technology as a team sport. So what made you say, you know what, I'm going to go write this book and share my thoughts. Talk, talk a little bit about that and kind of the role you've got in the Business Relationship Management Institute. I think it'd be great just for our listeners to hear about. Sure. One of the things that I learned early on in my career is this value of networking and, and inter- interacting and, and learning and meeting other people and hearing their stories, finding out what their issues and challenges are. There's so many common themes out there and learning from one another is there's nothing better than that. And as I started to develop some techniques around the the ideas that I ultimately incorporated into the book, I had a number of people ask me to share them. And so I started doing that and doing some informal coaching, kind of my side hustle in, in a way. And I, I just it just grew from there. And a number of people asked me to write about it. And I started doing some articles on LinkedIn early in the early days of LinkedIn got some good traction there. And I got this bright idea. I actually didn't get that idea from myself. I got it from other people, my wife in particular, said, you should really put a book together around this, which I thought was ludicrous. Like, who would ever want to read a book that I wrote? And that's ultimately what I ended up doing. So I wrote about my own experiences, you know, largely coming from the opportunity that I was given at FIS, which was called M&I Data Services at the time. And I learned, you know, to share that knowledge about how to sort of run IT like a business, think about it, your product area as a, as a true product, meeting with customers. It's really around relationships and understanding those relationships, especially customer relationships and, you know, seeing how they interact with your company, where the roadblocks are, how they're engaging or not engaging. Those are all clues to how you can strengthen the relationship, knock down barriers. And I started to think about how can I, as a CIO, make that a more repeatable process within the organizations that I was leading. And that's what ultimately led to the book and to the stories that I wrote in the book. Most of those stories are, in fact, all those stories are true stories. Many of the names were changed to protect the innocent. And not not all the stories I told in the book were perfect. (laughs) A lot of my learnings have come from mistakes that I've made. And I I wanted to share those mistakes and how I course corrected and and just share those ideas to help people avoid them if if possible. Obviously, making mistakes sometimes is one of the best teachers, assuming you're willing to look at your mistakes with good self-reflection and honesty. No, I totally agree. You shifted now into the the CIO mentor has kind of been the the shift, kind of the post the post CIO journey now for you. Talk a little bit about that move, and then also when you do that, that advising people. How do you how have you taken and continue to foster that sharing and that that thinking and the learnings with others? Well, one of the one of the things that I've you know I was taught as a as a young child. My parents sort of drilled in into us the idea that. 
each of us has our own value that we bring. They were very good about not letting us sort of judge other people. We had seven kids in the family, a mom and dad, so there were nine of us. And, you know, dinner dinner was always a fun experience, you know, and four of us were brothers. We're all big guys. I'm six, seven, and my my brothers are, you know, well over six feet tall as well. And I remember, you know, there'd be a, a column of bread there and my mom would put it down and about two seconds later there'd be no bread left because everybody would grab as much as they could <laughs> but we learned respect we learned how to have relationships we learned how to listen and those those life lessons sort of carried through for me and i i think one of the challenges that i see in the marketplace today is that we're, we're releasing people into the wild as professionals and we don't really spend a whole lot of time on how to teach people how to have good relationships and how to have good self-reflection in your own in terms of your own performance and so i started thinking about how i can share those ideas and concepts with people, how to have good personal accountability, how to think about yourself and your own performance with honest vision and eyes, clear eyes. And so one thing led to another, and that's, I had some good success with that, and it helped some people become CIOs, I had good traction with it, and I just really enjoy it. It's, it's one of those things that just never stops giving back. And so I'm just sort of addicted to it. And I'm in my late 60s, and I have no intention of stopping. I, I really love this stuff, and I love helping people. It's just a, a, a phenomenal experience. And you asked about the Business Relationship Management Institute. And when I wrote my book and released it, the Institute was just coming online. I didn't know anything about them. And somehow or another, they discovered my book and reached out to me, much like you did. One thing led to another, and they asked me to participate. I, I, I joined some committees. I started listening to what they were up to. And one thing led to another. And now I've been the board chair for the last four or five years, and I've enjoyed it. There's probably 30,000 members worldwide now. They're looking at, um, I think, crossing a pretty big threshold here soon with 10,000 certified business relationship management professionals. So they're pretty excited about that. So we're, we're watching to see who that person is and um, to a big celebration <laughs> online when that happens. So it's, it's a great organization. have had a lot of fun with it. And COVID has been a real challenge for a lot of organizations, especially not-for-profits. So with, you know, the ability to actually do in-person conferences has been sort of a, a real challenge. But nonetheless, we're still m- making it still active and people are still coming to our doors. And so it's been a lot of fun. And, and they're all about the same sorts of things, relationships and people and driving value and a lot of common themes. So a lot, a lot of overlap. You know, if you're looking at a Venn diagram between my book and the Institute, there's a, a lot of common ground there. Well, I know I, I got a ton of value out of you. I've had a lot of conversations around some of the concepts and, you know, agility and how those have come forward. And, and we can maybe have a whole podcast on that, to- on that topic on another day. So if we, if we shift our thinking and we come over to security, you know, I, I, I can't help but look at the relationship aspect from a security standpoint and how security leaders need to foster those same kind of relationships, just like all IT leaders have, all technology leaders have. Security needs to do the same thing. How have you translated as you, you know, because you've been directly involved in security now for the, the last couple of years, how are you advising people on how you take the, the, the things from a business relationship management side and IT business partnership side in, into the security world? That's a great question. And, and, you know, what I'm leaning on are the same principles. There's a trend that I'm seeing where really successful chief information security officers that I've interacted with are starting to think about how they can enhance their business knowledge. So they're, they're beginning to meet more frequently with business leaders around the organization. And in some cases, I see them meeting with external customers, which to me is the holy grail. As a CIO, I can't emphasize how important that is. But 
even as a chief information security officer or any sort of security professional, understanding your customers and how they engage, keeping in mind that you want to keep their data private and secure. That's your personal brand. That's your company's brand. So just getting that knowledge helps you to build more effective security programs. And I I would add to that the incredibly lightning fast speed that we see cloud adoption happening in organizations. We were talking about that 10 years ago, and it was fun to sort of discuss that at every technology professional conference you'd ever go to. That was the, the topic du jour. You don't hear about it as much. But what I, what I see now are digital natives coming into the business. And these are people that grew up with an iPad in their hands. So they're completely comfortable with technology. They may not understand all the inner workings like we do as lifetime career, you know, IT pros, but they're not afraid to leverage technology. They're not afraid to go grab Salesforce.com or any other platform that they think is going to add value and deliver the right results for them. The thing that I've, I've been really focused in on is helping those business leaders understand that when they go out on their own, you know, we used to talk about shadow IT. I don't hear about that so much anymore, largely because the cloud has given rise to the, the, the option now is very viable for a business unit to go out on their own and procure a platform. I've been working with a number of companies to expand the knowledge of that business leader to, to, to know that they now have a new set of responsibilities that comes along with that, that cloud platform they just procured. They're now the business owner. They've got to think about how to secure the data. They've got to make sure their vendors are you know, towing the line in terms of security protocols. And you know, if there are cyber events, they've got to be on top of those and know about them. And so there's a whole set of responsibilities that I've been talking about with those business leaders. And it's been very eye-opening. And in some ways, I, I think that's the true digital transformation that we're living through right now. It's more around how business leaders are starting to think about cybersecurity and and technology, and it's becoming part of their lexicon. I think it's becoming something that is, well, it's it's not optional. They have to understand it. I mean, one way or the other, security is not part of the business. And so it's no longer throw it over the wall to the technology group to, to handle it. It's now we, as a business community, have to understand the cybersecurity aspects of whatever solution we're undertaking and, and make sure that that vendor is towing the line and, and there's an accountability framework there. So I'm seeing a lot of that. I'm having really good conversations around that in the marketplace. So those are some of the things that I'm seeing and hearing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point. We call it shadow IT. And, you know, I've been kind of reframing that in a lot of our, some of the things we're writing. It's really business-led IT. I was with Ryan Talbot over at Borg Warner, and he never, he was telling me, you know, his CEO told him, he said, stop trying to control it and start figuring out how to enable and support it. I think that's the mindset shift we have to get to as technology leaders is our job is not to control it. Our job is to help it help it grow and flourish. Because in a day, it's pe- the people closest to the problem are those those digital natives now, and they're the best people equipped to solve it. How do we create the right framework and the right you know our own technology mesh inside of our organization so that we can do it, but do it in a safe and secure way? Yeah, absolutely. I you know I think Gartner last year had published you know like they do every year so one of their top. 10 or 15 cybersecurity projections or forecasted items. And one of those aspects is distributed decision-making. I think it goes right to the heart of this where, you know, with cloud and digital natives now running, you know, big parts of businesses, you're going to see less central control over business applications. And so having the right 
cybersecurity architecture and framework in place, and finding the right partners is crucial. And there's a there's another aspect of this that I have been harping on for the last several years. And I, I, I think back to Gartner's old design build run model. I, I've kind of reinvented that. I, I call it the new CIO. And that stands for collaborate, integrate, and orchestrate. So collaborate means, you know, with all these cloud platforms that are out there, it's incumbent on you as a business professional to understand those platforms, who's out in the market, who, who might be able to help you, who, who might help drive value. And as you select those platforms and you integrate them into your environment, you're not only integrating them, but you're pulling information out of them and you're making them run seamlessly. So there's, there's the collaborate part, you know, with the cloud and vendor partners, cybersecurity partners. There's integrating it into your environment, making the information available and useful. And then the third leg is orchestrate making sure the platform runs and that there's, you know, an oversight and and management of that platform on an ongoing basis. So I call that collaborate, integrate, orchestrate instead of design, build, run. And and it sort of embodies this whole idea of cloud and how we're, we're doing much more collaboration. And there's a lot more vendor partners in the mix and and finding the right vendor partner is absolutely paramount in in your thinking and that's that's a new skill set or an enhanced skill set i think that has really become critically important for business leaders is to to know how to you know manage that vendor partner select the vendor partner and and work with that vendor partner as you're as you're looking to deliver value and keep your environment secure overall no, I couldn't agree more. I'm fortunate because we I use my own technology, our own technology internally. But what I love is, you know, when I can pull up a dashboard and a new application comes in and I can simply ask the question to someone, what problem are you trying to solve? I'm not trying to stop them. I just want to know a problem they're trying to solve because if they've got that problem, there's probably, you know, a hundred other people that have that same problem. Or we may already have, you know, licenses to the tool they're looking to use, or we may already have licenses to a similar tool. And we can have a conversation about that and, you know, see if they looked at it, did they not know about it? Because I think we always assume as IT practitioners that we publish a catalog and voila, everyone knows all the apps we've got available. But the unfortunately, the world doesn't work that way. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there's a there's a term I've created too to help IT organizations, you know, talk about the platforms that they actually manage and and own and, and operate. And and oftentimes I find you know a business unit leader who's procured that cloud platform, it gets themselves into trouble and they ask IT for help. So I created this notion of advocated systems. So those are sanctioned platforms that are owned by, you know, the IT organization, let's say, and the company has approved those platforms and asked IT to provide those services on an ongoing basis. So when a business unit leader does something out on their own, that's not necessarily an advocated platform. It could become one, especially if you look at all aspects of managing it. And, you know, oftentimes business unit leaders don't really want to ultimately, at the end of the day, manage the vendor. We're experts at that in, in IT. And I see I see that transition happening in, in some instances now where a business unit leader went out on their own, procured a platform, and now is asking IT to pick up at least ask some aspects of it from a cybersecurity operating platform perspective, as well as just, you know, managing the vendor relationship. So that advocated system language has has become useful because it's given IT a way to describe and talk about what platforms they're actually sanctioned to support. And it gives them an opportunity to talk about uh, taking things on in addition to what they've been asked to do in a, in a business-oriented way versus just feeling like the business units are just dumping new things on top of them and every time they turn around. 
Yeah, that's a great one. Oftentimes it, it happens where the person that actually was managing that platform, that business unit leaves and goes somewhere else. And then they're like, I don't know how to operate this thing. So who's going to take over it now? And unfortunately, that's a lot of, that's been a lot of my experience and is that that's when that conversation tends to happen. But I've always said, Hey, I'll, I'd be happy to support it as long as the budget to support it comes with it. Because, you know, <laughs> we all have, we don't have endless resources on, on either side of the house. No, and that's, that's precisely it. I think that's part of the transformation that, that, that happens sometimes in real time when you, you run into those situations where someone's kind of at their wit's end with a with a vendor partner that either they're having trouble with or there was a cyber incident or something along those lines where they're just over their skis, don't really know what to do, and they, they come back to IT. And that's when, you know, you reach out and grab their hand and say, all right, let's figure this out together. And <laughs> that's part of working in a cross-team, cross-collaborative way. Totally agree. You know, I, I think back about something you said earlier and talking about the understanding of the business. And I think as CIOs, we've been orienting ourselves for for that way. Now it's it's really become like, if you're not doing that, you're probably not going to be in the seat very long because you got to know the business you're in in order to know how to 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 directly align what you need to be doing and, and not, not just align, but integrate into it and be that advocate. That's right. Yeah, at the end of the day, the company's goals and objectives are everyone's goals and objectives. And so to the extent you can help contribute to achieving them while doing it with operating efficiency and and, and security, then all the better. And, and that's the thing I think some business leaders are beginning to, to see is that, you know, IT isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. I mean, <laughs> we actually do add a lot of, a lot of value. There's, there's still a fair amount of ground to cover before I, I'd say we're to a point where that's universally true. But, you know, I think just the, the nature of the, the world and the cloud environments that we have, I think that's accelerating. And, you know, I think it's it's a good thing overall. For me, it's always been you spend the first 90 days not just learning your team, but more importantly, learning the business you're in. Because I think one of the traps that all technology leaders fall into, CIOs, CISOs, you, you name it, is I did this here, so it must work there too. And so you go to your new organization, you take whatever blueprint you had at the previous organization, you bring it to the next one. But it, every business, it, each business is different. You know, and they've got different business models, different go-to-markets. And if you don't understand that business, you could very easily break things that are working instead of helping generate revenue and reduce risk and reduce cost. The organization do all the opposite things, which is a definitely a bad recipe. Yeah, that's a really good point, Mike. And I've I've been encouraging um, cybersecurity professionals to spend more time in in business units you know one of the things i like to ask them is when's the last time you had a conversation with someone outside of the security team or or with the it leader or the cio and i'm starting to see more affirmative answers where yeah i am actually meeting now on a regular basis it's not an informal meeting or it's a formal meeting once a month or once every other month but I'm, I'm meeting with the head of marketing i'm meeting you know this division or that division i think that's crucially important to to build those relationships so they it sort of demystifies who you are and what role you play, and you have an opportunity to have a one-on-one with someone where they can ask questions where they may not want to ask them in a in a crowded conference room and expose their lack of knowledge. I think that's a really safe way to build those relationships. And I, when I'm coaching, that's one of the things that I, I really zero in on and to make sure that there's a regular routine interaction with people outside of IT and more specifically within business units and even the board meeting with board members to whatever extent. Sometimes the CEO or president doesn't really like IT just randomly calling board members, but you certainly want to clear that with with your leadership. But you can actually have conversations with those folks outside the quarterly board meeting. And I think it's really healthy to do that now and then. 
I, I can't agree more. And I was in a conversation this week and it's like, you know, a lot of times you get people that want to go build an app for the sake of building an app. I'd have app development leaders go, I got this great idea. I'm going to go build an app. And it's like, okay, well, you know, what problems are going to solve and what value are we creating for the organization if we do it? And who from the business unit is working with you on that? And, you know, what's the, well, how is this going to impact the ongoing profitability? What's the, you know, so you start having these kind of dialogue conversations and understanding that business and the, the risk, right? When I think about security, it's really about what's my appetite for risk? You know, sometimes you've got, yeah, you have a set of risks where those conversations can be harder conversations because the, maybe the, the there's not an aligned appetite for risk, you know, because definitely at a functional level, there may be one appetite, but at the CEO and board level, there's a different one. Because today, if I'm a, a board member, I don't want to get myself personally in trouble because we don't have the right security governance in the organization. So it's uh, those, those, I, I totally agree with you. You know, having it in a group session is like shaming the person for not knowing, right? Having it one on one fosters, you know, gives the ability to have a very vulnerable conversation with someone. But it all comes around like, hey, let, let's make sure we align to what our agreed level of risk is. And if there's an exception to that, let's make sure that we're all locking hands around that and everyone knows it. So if it comes back in the future that that, you know, the risk, you know, bites us in the future, that we did it consciously, not unconsciously. Yeah. And I, what you're describing to me is, is a technique that I've recommended and used personally, where, you know, if you're looking to make an investment in cybersecurity or IT in general, I like to shop that idea around to individuals on the executive team ahead of having the big meeting. So that, that gives them an opportunity to ask questions, probe, challenge you. It might, it might even have you go back and rethink what you're asking for, but that that's someone called it pre-selling. Well, I guess it is. And technically that doesn't sound as much like much fun, but it's just getting people one-on-one where you're sharing why you think the investment makes sense and why you think it's critically important now and, and letting them have that, you know, opportunity to interact and, and dialogue with you and ask questions. I think I'm glad you brought it up because that, that's just an incredibly powerful way to make progress and make investments where maybe in the past you've struggled and, and, you know, you bring the big requests to the, the, the meeting and, you know, usually there's pushback because they're all hearing about it, even though they may have gotten the materials ahead of time. They oftentimes are busy and they don't read the stuff. And that's just, just a better way to do it, I think. No, I can't agree more. And it, it's interesting when you look at the, the technology community at large from the vendor side, you know, because this is, you know, obviously my, the first time my career, I've, you know, people have said, oh, you've gone to the other side. I'm like, well, everyone's like selling something to somebody. But first time working for a technology company. The interesting piece is I, I've seen it on the other side. Vendors come in and they talk about the, their features of their product and the, and the roadmaps and where they're going. And what often gets lost in that is those, what business outcomes is this driving for me that's going to help my business be better or reduce risk in my business, right? The new concept in security is it's revenue protection, Right, because if I damage my brand because I have a data breach, that's gonna that's gonna impact my revenue because I'm gonna lose. I'm gonna churn customers. I'm, people are not gonna do business with me unless they feel confident that their data is secure with them. And so that revenue protection is a way to think about security. How do you protect your existing revenue streams? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, there are plenty of very public incidents that you can look at in the marketplace and talk about openly about where companies didn't make investments like southwest airline had a huge outage recently and it turned out there were some investments that hadn't been made over many years and so it ultimately led to their systems shutting down and i'm not quite certain what happened with the faa the other day but you know 
Now they're talking about some contract employee who did something to a file and one thing led to another. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that. But yeah, those those sorts of things can, you know, while they're timely in the marketplace, you can certainly as a as a cybersecurity professional leverage those real time, real world experiences as a a way to have a discussion, especially one on one. Did you hear about that? Did you see what happened in you know, draw some parallels in your own organization and talk about what you're doing and what needs to be done. It's a perfect opportunity to do that. Yeah, I remember when all the ransomware first started hitting the scene, I would get, you know, text messages or emails from, you know, the CEO saying, hey, are we, are we okay? <laughs> that would be the, <laughs> that, I get a forward of the, of the press, of the, the press announcement of something happening. Are we okay? You know, it's, it's interesting when you, when you think about this, because it's a, a lot of times in security, it's, you've got, and you've got varying degrees of accountability and budget and responsibility between security. And I really look at it as more like the infrastructure side of the house inside companies. And there's been this natural friction there because a lot of the budget, when the investments started happening in security, the team that got most of the budget cut was the the infrastructure team because they had to provide the budget for security, the carve out. And it's, you know, that friction still lives. I think I saw a stat yesterday that 49% of security professionals have a good relationship with their infrastructure peers. Yeah, I, I see that same phenomenon. It's trying to, if I could just remember this phrase, I'll see if I can come up with it. But the, the one group's responsible for moving packets, the other is responsible for stopping packets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, something's wrong with that definition, but... I did hear a cybersecurity professional give me that definition. And that's, you know, where the conflict in infrastructure maybe comes from. Who knows? Yeah, for that network team, it's always the meantime to innocence because everyone always blames the network. It's got to be the network. Something's wrong with the network. And, <laughs> you know, how quick, quickly can I prove it's not the network? And the first call from the network guy is always to the security team going, hey, what did you do? You put something in the network? Did you deploy some kind of new agent on people's machines that's causing problems? Exactly. Uh, I'm sure I've heard that more than once over the last year in in particular. Yeah, Yeah. it's a and I think that's that cross-functional working. It's, you know, I think as CIOs, because, you know, still, you know, 80 percent of CISOs still report into CIOs, I believe, if I if you look at a lot of companies. Yeah. And I think it's on that's something as CIOs, as leaders, they need to foster that interconnectivity between those two teams and those relationships. And and you have to do it all the way down because oftentimes the relationship can work well at the infrastructure operations leader and the security leader that are both reporting into the CIO. The challenge is you got to translate that all the way down to the front line of your teams and make sure that everyone's working well together. And I think that's where we have a lot of work to do as, as CIOs. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I, that reminds me of a challenge that I, I see a lot of organizations struggle with. And there aren't really solid enterprise risk management programs in place at a lot of the organizations that I've interacted with and worked with, with one or two exceptions. And in those instances, you know, having that discussion on a more broad level are, are more difficult just because there isn't an acknowledged function in place. I know that PwC had done a an annual study. I haven't checked to see if they've done it in the last year or two, but I think it's something like 20 or 30% of organizations have formal enterprise risk management programs. They tend to be large enterprises because they they have to have those. But, you know, smaller organizations, mid-sized organizations don't really have a formal program. And and I think that's a, a real challenge because it's harder to get to that team sport concept when you don't have a, a function that's really zeroed in on risk and privacy in a way that would really enhance that as a concept inside companies. But I, I do think that's changing. 
And part of what I see too, Mike, is several insurance providers are now asking more questions around that. They want to know how sophisticated is your program and do you have a program? Is it Does it live outside of IT? Do you have enterprise risk? And what what measures and met- metrics are you using and what methodologies are you using and have you tested them? You're just starting to get more real about it. I think partly because they're you know, having to pay out on incidents and they're, they're getting smarter about you know, what they expect from their customers overall. But I think not, I think having an enterprise risk management program is really huge, whether it's formal or not. Um, somebody has to be responsible for risk overall because it's, it, that, that gets to this whole idea that it's, it's uh, it is a team sport and, Everyone has a role to play, especially business unit leaders that are making decisions on cloud platforms on their own. They're playing a huge role on that. We're, I'm working with one client to help frame up a distributed decision-making model that encompasses requirements around enterprise risk, legal, privacy, cybersecurity, trying to think about what that framework looks like so that if business units are out on their own, they're using a enterprise risk management sanctioned framework to make good decisions. And then there's a trust but verify audit methodology in place to, to make sure that, not to do gotcha work, but just to make sure that people are actually following the rules and things are, are happening the way they ought to and looking for ways to enhance the whole process. But I, I see that hopefully happening more and more. A, one company in particular has done a really good job. I would say their name, but I don't think they would want me to do that. <laughs> But it's really neat to see. That's one organization where the idea around cybersecurity several years ago wasn't quite where it is now, but the enterprise risk management team has done a really solid effort of elevating the the dialogue and getting everyone more cognizant and aware that cybersecurity is not just an IT thing, it's, it's a company thing. And it fits into the whole cybersecurity framework overall. You know, we learn in business school, right? What do we care about? We care about growing revenue. We care about reducing our costs so we can reinvest and becoming more efficient. We care about reducing risk in our business and we care about, you know, strategically staying ahead of our competition. And, you know, now you bring into that ESG and how do we make a more sustainable organization is obviously a key theme on the environmental side. I think about risk and if you frame it in that way, we have scenario planning in business for a reason, because if certain thing, if my raw material prices go up, what's that risk it's going to create in my business? Yeah, exactly. And I, I, it's a healthy conversation. I, tabletop exercises, if you can get organizations to do them, are really impactful. And, you know, playing through those scenarios and asking executives to think about what they do in an actual response situation is really pretty telling. So I've seen some organizations do that really, really effectively. And, and that's one way where I've seen that education and those light bulbs start to pop on when you're living through a simulated you know, experience and you're starting to think about markets and customers and issues and impacts. It starts to get people pretty serious about you know understanding where things stand in the organization and how how would we respond so i've seen that as a as a healthy way to sort of promote the idea that it's it is truly a team sport yeah i totally agree and i you know you just brought to mind as i think about security as a team sport goes beyond the people inside my business it goes out to the ecosystem i'm in the my my suppliers i work with if i'm a manufacturer and i have a supplier if i have a sole source supplier because i'm trying to get a really good price on raw materials but that supplier doesn't have a good security program and they get compromised, that could cripple my supply chain. And so bringing that cyber risk into the conversation around your procurement strategy, I think is, you know, is another part of that security as a team sport. And how do we help the ecosystem, the community at large do better? I was a CIO at a mid-sized manufacturing organization in Charlotte a couple years back. And it's a company that produces 
and manufactures home entertainment equipment. So, so things like speakers, amplifiers, TVs, routers, switches, access points, anything that you'd need for a home network. And I built a cloud platform there that allowed the professional installer to configure and manage all of those devices from a smartphone. So one, one of the products is a surge protector, and we gave them the ability through firmware to, to access every single outlet on that surge protector. So if, if a client called and said, hey, my, my Roku is frozen or my Apple TV is frozen, the installer or the, the company that installed the product can actually go to that location, get to that surge protector and power cycle that outlet to get them back up and running. And so that whole, that whole experience where we were building firmware that was embedded in all these hardware platforms really made me nervous. And so I, I engaged an innovative cybersecurity company to come in and take our top 10 products, and I asked them to have their way with them to see what holes they could poke in them. And so that was the first time at this organization that we really spent any kind of concerted effort or focused time on thinking through how we would secure those platforms. Because the last thing I wanted was one of those platforms to experience a breach and then, you know, have the reputation of the company go down the drain. So it was really an eye-opening experience, and we it, they did find problems. And it, it launched a whole set of cybersecurity initiatives where we had to revamp our firmware architecture so that it was hardened, and so the kernels, you weren't able to touch them. And we, we invented a way to do firmware updates through the platform. And so it was uh, really game-changing for the organization. Whereas in the past, they hadn't thought about that firmware and and the cybersecurity aspects of it and what the potential risks were. So that was a, a really fun sort of experience for me. I felt like a pioneer in, out in the in the woods <laughs> at the time. We were doing it just a number of years ago now, but a lot of fun. And I keep in touch with them, and they're still very, very focused on cybersecurity because the obviously downsides of not <laughs> doing that are pretty consequential. So they've done a really nice job. Absolutely. Well, I want to shift a little bit here. I want you to be a futurist for me here. So as we think about where the industry is going as CIOs, and maybe this is a two-part question, as we fast forward five to 10 years into the future, where do you feel like CIOs wish they would have invested in? Maybe first, if you think about specifically in the cybersecurity area, where do you feel like they should have have invested? And then on the other side, technology overall. Cybersecurity first, I'd say zero trust is a I, you know, I hate using the phrase because it, sometimes it, it causes people's eyes to glaze over. But I think as an architecture and a philosophy, as an organization, if you start to think about zero trust and how you can implement that in an effective way across your platforms, whether cloud or not or on-prem, you know, the old castle moat concept goes away and you're really looking at authenticating users on devices and locations. That mindset, that concept, and, and that the ability of an organization to adopt those principles, I think, is is one of the most you know robust and strongest ways to to protect customer data and your organization. So I think, as a CIO, I, I would imagine if I could see into the future, I would probably wish I had spent more money and invested more time in getting that platform to, to a state of reality in in the company that I, I work with. But in terms of Technology overall, I just think there's going to be a continued acceleration of cloud, IoT, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Those are all going to be vivid realities for us. And I think investing in understanding your data and, and knowing how to protect that data will become 
an area that I, I think looking forward, I, I hope CIOs are investing in right now. In five or 10 years, I'm not sure if I'll still be working, but if I am, it'll be fun to kind of look back at what we talked about today and, and see how how reality sort of unfolded over the next several years. That's really great. You know, I, you know, there's one thing you said when you talked about zero trust, I think it's really important for, for CIOs and CISOs to think about is, you know, NIST published a document around zero trust architecture. When you read it, the pictures themselves lean towards a on-prem application or private application. And some of those can live in the cloud, obviously, because when I build them public cloud, those are still private apps. But I think we really have to be thinking across all applications. So even that SaaS application, I need to be applying those same principles from a zero trust architecture to SaaS applications, just like I do my public cloud applications. Because in fact, the console that I use to build applications in, in cloud and in, in hyperscalers is a SaaS application. And it's got to have governance around it. So you don't have a business unit. You're going back to your term earlier, advocated platforms, I could have an advocated in, you know instance inside AWS. Well, I want people building there, not in their own rogue instance, because Hey, that doesn't count toward my contract I signed with AWS on my commit. I don't get the discounts. And by the way, none of my security tooling's there. I think practitioners and CIOs and CISOs need to be thinking about all apps, not just the ones that reside inside their data center or public cloud environments. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, at the end of the day, whatever app, wherever it is, it's still part of the company's brand. And if it if something happens, no one's going to care if it's on-prem or not. They're just going to care that if there was an incident and maybe data got exfiltrated or worse. And and so I think that's a really good point you're making. And and I don't think that problem is getting any easier because I mean from what I see there are you know every day there's another cloud solution that is coming out of the floor with more capabilities that companies are gonna be able to take advantage of. All right. Well, we're, we're coming up on the end of our episodes and, you know, we always end our episodes, you know, with some quick hits. One of the questions I have for you today, since we're on the topic of books, what is the favorite book you've read this year and why? I just finished Cy Wakeman's No Ego. I've been a big fan of Cy Wakeman for years. I have gotten to know her a little bit, but her book is really around personal accountability self-reflection, you know, it just, it really speaks to me as, as a coach and a leader, you know, that it, it starts with you as an individual. And so her stories are, are raw and real. And those lessons that she teaches in her book are lessons for all of us. So I, I'd really encourage people to pick it up and, and take a look at it. It's been a, a real big plus for me. I, I really think the simplicity of her messages and her language and her teachings are, are so powerful. Self-reflection is one of the, the, key aspects of of my performance as a leader as I think about my own performance. If you can get good at self-reflection and honestly evaluating your own performance without judging, it's just remarkable what it can do for you. Well, I'm going to have to add that one to my reading list. That, that one sounds great. The only other question I'm going to ask today is, because you just have such a wealth of information and wisdom in this, what's the best leadership advice you've ever gotten? Well, I think beyond self-reflection, it's just this idea that leadership starts with self, it starts with you. And there's a definition of personal accountability that I live by. And it starts with committing yourself 100% to whatever you do. And when you do that, that means it's likely that you'll have resilience. And so you'll take something on, you you know you're going to run into roadblocks, but you're going to find a way to succeed despite your circumstances. So commitment and resilience are parts of that. Then the next pillar is, is ownership, owning the results, whether they're good results or bad results. And then the fourth pillar is learning from that, all of that. So ownership, resilience, commitment, learning, all, all of those things really. If you come into the office or virtually, however you come in, <laughs> start your day thinking about those four pillars 
it's remarkable what it can do to sort of change the way you approach relationships and, and your work, even your life at home. This has just been an amazing conversation. And every time you and I get together, I just can't say how much I appreciate just the dialogue. I think I learned something new from you every time we talk. And that's what I appreciate about our friendship and the relationship we formed over the years. Thank you so much for being a guest today. You know, the I always try to summarize the conversation. It's hard to pick three things, but I, I try to pick three things that just stuck out in my mind. First and foremost, I love the new acronym, the, the Collaborate, Integrate, Orchestrate, because it speaks to that security is a team sport. And we have to foster relationships. We have to get those one-on-one relationships so we can have that vulnerable conversation so that we can grow together. That'd be the first one. The second one, I love the concept of advocated platforms. That really helps us reframe the thinking around from shadow IT to business led IT and how do we partner with people so we're not just picking it up later once someone's left the organization, but we're partnered from the beginning. And then the third one that really you know I picked out of this is beyond the self-reflection, because that one's just, we could have a whole other podcast just on that whole concept. You know, the the company objectives are everyone's objectives. And as we think about cybersecurity, you know, we need to make sure that cybersecurity is built into the objectives of the overall organization. Then we understand what the the appetite for risk is. And we're having that conversation with our business leaders so that we, we are all integrated and working together towards the same unified goal. It has been great, Joe, to have you on today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, I just want to say thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure, and I love our discussions and interactions, and I always learn something from you as well. So thanks thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Joe. I want to thank all of our listeners today to listening to this episode of the Security Visionaries podcast. I'm your host, Mike Anderson, CIO and Chief Digital Officer here at Netscope. Have a great day. The Security Visionaries podcast is powered by the team at Netscope. Fast and easy to use, the Netscope platform provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, or private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netscope.com. Thank you for listening to Security Visionaries. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and share it with someone you know who might enjoy it. Stay tuned for episodes releasing every other week, and we'll see you in the next one.